had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Listeners, I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation Change. I could not be more excited to welcome as a co-host, Dr. Becky Martinez. Hello, I'm so glad to, to be here to, to talk about and to get into this thing called class. For folks that have been listening, it's been three years since I've had this radio show, and you may have done one or many. And if I reflect, most of the work has always been on dismantling racism, recognizing racism, white supremacy, how it's infusing individual group organization, and then really organizationally what we need to do and self-work. And Becky, when you came on my show, which is now our show, in December to look at issues of class and classes, which you've been writing about, speaking about for years, living with for decades. I just got so clear that I wanted to use the next series. I don't know if we'll do the entire year or to really look at dynamics of class, classism in a similar way to race. So I just wanna personally thank you because this is time, energy investment to be a co-host as we really unpack class and classism and learn, at least I'm going to learn a lot and hope the listeners will really do their self-work as they prepare to be organizational and societal change agents. Yeah. Um, the session that we had, um, or the conversation we had in December was so, um, like it was so filling to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just being able to be in conversation around like what is class what like how does it play out um in our lives and our organizations and with our teams and with ourselves and with our family um and my hope is is that we can continue to to do that in a clear space because oftentimes class gets conflated with um or added on to or completely um like ignored because it is um, it is sometimes not an easy uh, conversation to have. I know personally, I feel guilt and shame, embarrassment, and we'll get to this because we're gonna, today we're going to do a lot about our own class journeys, inviting you to reflect on yours. And as I think about why we wanted to really delve into class for however long. Um, I get into organizations and I join you. The hierarchical dynamics of classism, the elitism and the culture, the climate, titles, what your degree is, it's intersection with all race. I mean, it just keeps going. We're gonna keep focus on class with the intersections, trying to break the secrets. Because I do believe many folks, at least I grew up middle 
and now I'm upper middle class, I think um, hiding secrets, ashamed of how much money we have or don't have, jealous of those with more. So any and all of the above with the goal for me of how do we apply this in our family systems, communities, and particularly the organizations where we work, be a part of community change. So looking forward to our journey. Yeah, me too. Um, and as you, uh, yeah, I can't wait to some like to talk about some questions um, and we can share stories because we do so much work around race and we talk about class with that um, and to have it centered, um, to have it kind of switched to center will be interesting because I always learn so much from you around the like the organization and the systems thinking, um, which is um, part of uh, how I do my work. And I also like I start as you know, like deep individually <laughs> to see how then we can be more clear to show up in how we supervise, how we develop a budget, how we use language, um, what we pack for a conference, um, you know, all of those pieces. Um, so it's uh, it's a space that um, the I think the beginning said fasten your seatbelts, and it is a space um, as I think about a seatbelt like the seatbelt is is necessary but it's not always comfortable, um, and I think that that uh, is part of the journey. It's necessary to talk about it, engage in it, name it, and um, and knowing that those for me um, and people I work with there's still like a tinge like oh. As you said, oh, like we can talk about like how much money we earn or where we go to eat or how we vacation or how we pay attention or not to voices that are in a room. I mean, who gets valued more and who's not even there? So listeners, take a deep breath. As we continue today, we're starting a bit more with the individual level. You might remember I've used the metaphor of trifocals different times. Three lenses, individual, group, organizations, what Becky was just talking about. And we're going to focus a bit more on the individual today, our individual class journeys, which are influenced by our group membership in which class? Privileged, marginalized, and it is a continuum. I don't know if you talk about it in that way, a spectrum, but there are so many different variations I find in our class of origin, class shifted over time, current class, what could be in the future. And so as we move into getting you to know who we are from our class identities, really invite you to honestly maybe write down the questions we're talking about, what thoughts come to you, because we're going to give you homework before the next one to really be writing out your class journey and sharing with others. So we really invite you to be fully present to your thoughts and your feelings. Yeah. Um, and the question that I love to ask, and it's so simple and so complex, is what is your class story? And it's fluid. Uh, I think that that's the one thing listeners to uh, pay attention to. For many people, it's fluid. It shifts. Um, and there's probably the intersection of age and education, right, and disability and, you know, and, and, and. Um, and so know that that's, I think, that 
challenge sometimes with class when I say, when I ask what's your class story, it's like, oh, where do I answer that from? Um, so, Kath, what's your class story? You know, when you asked that, I remember it was into my doctoral work. So I was, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s when I did a weekend workshop on classism. It was Dr. Felicia Skell, who actually, I believe, started class action. And over our series, I think we'll have folks who've been a part of class action. It's out of Boston. I know you're on the board, I believe. Um, incredible work they've done. But, you know, one of the first questions was, when did you first realize there were people of different classes? And so when I was thinking about that this morning, maybe elementary school was the first time when I realized that some of the kids that were in my classes went home for lunch while I lived a long way away from school. I thought, you know, half mile, but I had the money to buy. But as I think back, I, when my mom would drive through the neighborhood where I knew they lived, um, the houses were closer together and we might have gone into D.C. for different reasons. I noticed row houses. And so I started to realize we were in a freestanding house, I don't know, three, four bedroom with an apartment for a grandmother, grass, land. So I started to realize, oh, we have more access and income than some people. But then I'm like, when did I realize people had more resources? Because everybody where I grew up was middle class slash a little professional class. And then when I got to junior high, I was like, oh, I started hanging. I seeing people that actually had much more. They were up on the hill in Chevrolet, Maryland, doctors, lawyers. And when I would walk up there, I'd see them in church. Clothes were different, sitting differently. And then the houses occasionally I saw were just so much bigger. So early, you know, it's 12, 14 before I really started realizing there are lots of class differences. Um, uh, Dr. Liu and his social class worldview model talks about referent groups. Mm. And that's usually, right, one of the ways that we like cognitively can um, delve into class. So as you said, like, I didn't know until I knew. I didn't know that it was different or that, um, that my class was different than somebody else's until I had a group to compare it to. Um, and so I, I love hearing that. Um, and yeah, I think of my um, journey and there's lots of different referent groups. Um, and like my class story is so much about, you know, how I grew up and what we valued and, um, you know, my mom, um, so my mom grew up, I would assume like working, working middle class, that farmer. So that adds another layer. And then my dad's side of the family, my grandmother grew up as a migrant worker and then um, a house, uh, house cleaner at a hotel. And I didn't know um, that it was, I mean, it they were loving, they were fun, they took care of us, they fed us. We all lived in the same town, which is good and bad. Um, uh, I lived on space, so I lived in a mobile home, um, but it was, but we had space, right? And so like the yard was the ranch and we could play and 
um, all of those things. And as I got older, meaning probably like six, seven, eight, um, there was a definite distinction about how my grandmothers lived. Um, so, you know, and how, like how, how they lived. So my mom's mom, um, was able to stay home, um, and didn't have a going to work job. She did a lot of work, in, um, taking care of, um, but my, and my grand, my other grandmother, like would get up early in the morning, would make a delicious breakfast, um, like be able to make a stack of tortillas, like in that time it takes me for two hours to do that um and then she would go to work all day um and then she would come back and then she would cook dinner mm. um so there was like a definite difference in how they how they did work um and sometimes she would have to work on thanksgiving and christmas and so we have to shift that and her tree looked different than my other grandmother's um so like those pieces are definitely part of my class story um, and what that meant and like what was valued or not valued and um, and then the referent groups right so those were my re referent groups but because they were part of the family it was very different than when I would go to friends homes because then it was distinctly different because there wasn't the same connection and um, you know their homes were homes and um, you know maybe a swimming pool they you know there was more than one car um, uh, you know, their, their attire was different. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, class stories, they're so, they're so deep. And not simple or complex, because I grew up thinking poor, working class, middle, even as I hear you, the intersection with education, I'm told that on both sides of my mom and dad's family, there were masters, doctorates, lawyer, my, I'm named after great aunt, who was a lawyer and then her father was a lawyer a judge though i think he might have been given it but still prestige in me um and then on my mother's side i think her father was a pharmacist and i didn't realize till later she went to washington university which now that we've both been there doing trainings <laughs> we know was an elite now it was in the same city uh, i don't know she, and she lived on campus she was in a sorority but she never talked about that she grew up with more class access privilege than my dad much less than we were living with because i would say that her growing up was probably much more upper middle class um, whereas when i was growing up i knew that education was valued uh, my dad had a master's he was an engineer worked for himself so he had the the garage was his workspace he also kind of worked for a corporation i think but i don't know he was in the military reserved by then so he had sources of income and activity and my mom would make some of our clothes. And I remember eating Spam and Tongue. So I don't know if, because my dad worked for himself, that there were times when there wasn't as much money. His mother lived with us. And then at some point went into a nursing home. So there were costs there. So they never talked about money, which I think is either WASP or middle class or both. I don't know. Um, so I never knew. But I knew we didn't have as much as other people. And I was always looking up of what we didn't have, as opposed to what 60, 70% of the US, much less 90 plus percent of the world that had less economic resources than I did growing up. So, 
Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing. I mean, I've known you for years and this is the first time that I've ever heard um, your story. Back at um, you. Yeah. So it's, um, so I think that that's the, the lovely thing. Um, I, it's, it's complex, right? And that's one of the reasons that people have a, I, I think have difficulty talking about it. One, I mean, one, we're supposed to not talk about it, right? It's taboo to talk about like money. Although we talk about capital in so many ways all the time. Um, and then we're just not, so if we're not supposed to talk about it, then we don't know how to talk about it. And it just becomes this, like how we navigate, um, but like that, how we navigate there's like there's so there's values right? so as I even as I was talking about my my grandmothers and how we grew up like the the like the notion or the not even the notion but the hard work like hard work is a huge part of how I grew up and and what that means to me and if I take a rest day or not and I sometimes show tears so audience know that that is a part of how I do me in the world um, and so, um, and so then I, and I, I, I would assume, right, from what you said, there's hard work in that family structure, like they've had hard work, but I, I don't know if it's like directly as spoken, um, cause you know, becoming an engineer is hard work, <laughs> um, but I don't think we think about it in the same way, or at least I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't live in my body the same way which is all kinds of socialization around class and production and capitalism and, um, you know, those pieces that make up class. Um, so yeah, this, this notion of hard work um, is part of my, like my DNA. And sometimes I think that that DNA is a really good thing to pay attention to it. Sometimes it doesn't allow rest, right? Yeah. Just had an insight that hard work to me, and I wonder if other white middle class, so I don't know what the racial intersection is there, that hard work for me was study. Yes, I had chores, mowed the lawn, had inside stuff. I had time to play. So I think that might be a class indicator is once my schoolwork was done and then even the summers until I, I mean, I did babysitting in my teen years. But I didn't have to get a job and, and then have my resources go to support family. Mm. Um, so working hard was, as I said, chores. And when I hear you talk about your grandma and others, hard work was, what, 10, 12, very physical, dangerous labor. Because when you said migrant worker, we're talking chemicals, we're talking the abuse and the violence. So as listeners you know, what did, what did working hard mean in your family might even be a way to, to have the team talk about. And then Becky, I do relate to, I grew up thinking that my worth was my success. Yeah. And so I don't know, I think that might be a middle-class thing too, but that I'm, I might be because of woman, but my, I was only worthy if I was helping others, if I was supporting others, if I was working hard producing, um, whereas folks that were rich and living off their money were not helpful and useful. So somewhere I got that combination mm. of, um, so I was proud to be working class and I worked hard and I earned what I did and I 
went to college and master's and I worked hard and got a doctorate, but, but I was that individualism. Cause one of the questions you added was benefits, but also obstacles that message that you're an individual and you get what you deserve back then had me judge folks that did not have as much. So folks that were poor working class, I still struggle with the lazy, mm-hmm. not working hard, um, alcohol, even though alcohol is my family, I'm recovering alcoholic, they were the alcoholics, drug abusers. So just this, all this projection um, onto folks with fewer resources and not recognizing the structures, the centuries, how the U.S. was built on classism, capitalism, exploitation, genocide. Didn't learn that. And even till George Floyd was murdered, I didn't go in deeper to really understand more how classism, racism were really a part. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm um, always enraged <laughs> when folks like are like, well, if they just worked hard enough, mm. <laughs> it's like, do you, you, you don't get it. Um, so the, like the notion again of work, right. And, and again, like very labor, um, you know, what is the manual labor or physical labor that people put into their jobs. And sometimes that is how I um, like I will judge people because <laughs> I I know I do good work and I know that like my work is helpful to the world um, and it's and I always say and thank goodness for like people who are like stop that narrative because um, I'm like yeah but I don't work hard you know like I can sit in a chair and my back hurts from the pandemic and um, like but the labor is so very different. Um, and, you know, my, like my joints and my hips and my back aren't going to be um, needing surgery or in dire pain when I am 60 or 65, unlike people who have been laboring, um, physically laboring, like, you know, I'm, I haven't done any research on it, but I'm sure I could quickly pull up data around like what the mortality rate is for people who, you know, have had white collar jobs and have had working class or um, blue collar or laboring jobs. Um, yeah. And how do we treat our like groundskeepers <laughs> right? and custodians and people who are making our spaces clean and pretty and um, like, and are we paying attention to aches and pains? And do we allow maybe more breaks um, for them to like sit and rest and get warm because it's cold outside and some spaces, right? Like how do we even create um, times for them to be able to rest their bodies during a work day? Hmm. I remember when I went to college and literally the first day I started work in the um, dining hall. And so I'd be doing the dishes, sometimes serving food. Uh, and I just flashed that in the back, making all the food were black women who probably were born and grew up on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And this was a private liberal arts college in Maryland. Besides hello, I'm not sure I interacted much unless they were directing me to do something. Um, I was hanging out with the other middle, upper middle, if not rich folks who could afford to go to this liberal arts college. Um, And I also was very aware that to be able to buy books, I was an RA for three years, I worked in the bar also at night. 
so I to be able to have the kind of thing so I could buy a few clothes to look like the folks, you know, the boat shoes um, that I was trying to be and look more class privileged than I was, got some scholarships, my folks got out loans. But even that is another example of I kept looking up mm-hmm. instead of realizing how much privilege and class I had because going to that liberal arts, well, first of all, I went to a private high school for four years. They desegregated Prince George's County. My folks decided out of, I believe, the racism, white supremacist beliefs to not have me be bused to Bethune Junior High. And so the access, yes, they took out a lot of loans and maybe sold some lands that they had inherited from Maine, again, class privilege. And all of that just shoots and ladders so that I just moved much more quickly from middle class. I wasn't yet upper middle class, but I was sure getting what the cultural capital, social capital, educational capital. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I always get um, thrown when I am uh, traveling and, and I'm in a hotel and the, uh, the cleaning crew is white because I'm so used to um, the cleaning crew being brown um, uh, and, and then black and then white. That's usually how I um, experience it. And it could be because I travel in more places <laughs> that have brown people, I don't know. It's, so it's usually women um, it's usually brown women that are speaking a language um, other than English. And to, to um, like, how do we humanize those people and just say good morning or hello or thank you? Um, and, and, and that's the bare minimum, right? Like that's a very low standard. Um, and sometimes when I um, try to be in relationship with them, whether it's like two minute conversation they're not used to it they don't know how to react to it they're supposed to get their work done so maybe it's frowned upon um because they've got to get a certain amount of rooms done in a certain amount of time um like but how do we like humanize the people that are um you know that are cooking our food in our dining halls or cleaning up after ourselves and but there's a very like there's a disconnection around that and sometimes like, I even feel guilty. Like, should I say hi? I don't want to disturb them. I'm embarrassed. I don't speak the same language. Right? Like, so there's all of that internalized narrative that happens. And, like, we can talk with people. Um, you know, how do we make that to be a norm? <laughs> even in our, you know, discomfort of staying in a hotel and what that means that people are serving or us. And even the word serving us is such a space. Uh, we'll keep finding differences. I expected to be served. So whether it was a, a restaurant, like we're paying money, service. So hotel, I expected. So that sense of entitlement, and I couldn't use that word till maybe, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And, um, and so when I don't get good service, that sense of how dare you and entitlement. So when I hear you talking about interacting with folks that are cleaning rooms and um, I am polite, nice, but until it was LCY Cross, a black woman uh, consulting firm that said, and you will leave a tip Mm -hmm. under the pillow 
and then you can charge it and the company will pay for it. And someone, uh, so I started doing that. And then on my own, I started doing it, a couple dollars. And then someone who was much younger than me said, I leave $5. And I was, I was appalled at 20 years. And now I leave that and more. And just um, my money is mine and I get to decide I earned it. Um, yeah. The other thing that you talked about that really, again, new thoughts is, again, class indicators is your time. Who gets to decide how you use time? And I wonder if you, quote, move up the class ladder, because I always, besides, you know, babysitting, I could run my time, camp counseling, we had some structure, but I got to decide what to do. Dining hall, not so much, but as I went into residence life and university, I had lots of fluidity on how I chose my time. Um, and so we're about to go to a break. I don't know if, you know, this whole issue of freedom to work and decide how you do what you do. If you want to say any more about your own personal journey on that, and then we'll move to break. Time's such a big resource. And um, yeah, right. And so for some people, they have to clock in, like they clock in and out. And so their time is strictly monitored. Um, and, um, for others, it's like, oh, I can take an hour and a half lunch, or I can go to an hour coffee meeting. Cause I'm going to mentor somebody or I'm going to have a meeting over coffee and there's some energy and work, um, and labor in that. And so I don't want to dismiss that. And there's, um, there's a different, um, way that we engage time depending upon, where we work, how we work. Um, and I think the pandemic has thrown some of that off um, and people recognizing um, time valued differently. Uh, and there's still people who are at the grocery store that clock in and out and you know have 10 minute breaks here and there. And so um, it's, the, it's the both and of that space. Um, and if we're responsible for leading people and supervising people, how are we congruent with how we say that they're supposed to spend their time or how do we role model and create policies that they could spend their time um, differently than what the structure is de designed to do. Listeners take a deep breath. We're going to take a break and come back to more conversation with Dr. Becky Martinez as we co-create and co-host. Any final thing you want to say before break? Because this is your first time. This is our first time going to break together. Yeah, I would say on your break, um, take a couple deep breaths and maybe jot two or three notes around what's your class story, whether that was when you're five or whether that was like five days ago. It's all part of it. We'll see you on the other side. Want to ignite your best life full of joy, passion, and purpose? Then join me, Stephanie James, for The Spark, Wednesday nights, 6 o'clock Pacific Time, 9 o'clock Eastern, on TransformationTalkRadio.com, and learn how together we can illuminate the world. Learn more on StephanieJames.world. The best is yet to come. Champion your life with me, Leanne Champion, first and third Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com. That new gym membership might help you get fit, but what about emotional fitness? 
jump into the rushing waters of personal growth. Don't waste another minute feeling unfulfilled. Visit championyourlife.com and let's do this together. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Are you feeling lost in this journey we call life? When you awaken the truth of your patterns, limitations, and beliefs, you can start to heal relationship with yourself, others, and your circumstances. I'm Ritika Rose, life coach, author, and speaker. My mission is to help you align with your most powerful, authentic self and transform how you experience your inner and outer world. Find the confidence and peace to live the highest version of your life. Visit RitikaRose.com. Parenting isn't about perfection. I think we all know that. Parenting is about being present and honest, having compassion for your child and for yourself, communicating consciously and loving unconditionally. Tune in to The Awakened Parent Project with Susan Dolce every first and third Tuesday at noon Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to be an empowered parent through the techniques of the conscious parenting community. To learn more about Susan, visit SusanDolce.com. Healing has a ripple effect. One person's healing affects everyone around them. This is where the power of sharing our stories can be so important. Tune in to Playing on the Edge Radio with Megan Edge each month on Transformation Talk Radio as Megan provides you with ways of sustaining radical and powerful changes in your life. Enact the power of radical change. To find out more about Megan Edge, visit her website at meganedge.ca. Hello. Welcome back. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Um, and I say doctor because you earned some of that, Kathy. Um, and we're, we're talking about class. And so um, prior to break, we had talked, uh, given you the, uh, the homework or the reflection to write a couple of things around what's your class story. And during break, Kathy said, hey, you didn't name your class story, like your class. So that's interesting. I think that I make an assumption. And so I define myself as straddling class. Um, grew up working class, um, sometimes working class poor, uh, and am now middle class and upper middle class, depending upon the capital, because um, there's so many pieces of capital that are a part of my class story. So I always pay attention to those. Um, and, and again, there's the complexity of that. And so as I think about straddling class, um, Kathy, you had talked a little bit about like upward mobility or you're supposed to, you know, the higher, the more, the more education, more title, um, probably longer hours of an office, <laughs> um, you know, uh, those pieces. I think that that is how capitalism is set up, right, is to um, like more, 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 better. And if I think specifically in academia, Right. It is the further degree. It is the further degree from this institution. Um, it is getting, you know, a director job and then an assistant dean and then a dean and then a VP and then a, you know, um, dot, dot, dot. And that's um, 
that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and, and I, and I get that set up, right. Um, well, if Tanya Williams was here, she would give the quote that Prince says in one of her, his songs around like, um, like, you know, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you like things to, you know, to do, right. <laughs> to be happy. And so, you know, it's for me, it's holding all of that as real and all of that is like, what are we buying into or not buying into? Um, and if we think about education, we think about the upward mobility myth that that's what we're supposed to strive for. And if we don't, then we're like less skilled or competent or not as smart or not driven. Um, and it's like, hmm, you know, the, <laughs> the person who builds houses is pretty driven. <laughs> and they're skilled and competent and it's just it's a different skill and a different competency but we we even put value on the skill and the competency right and so if I can speak this way and wear a suit and command um command people and direct people and I'm responsible for this budget or this amount of people to supervise then that is what this American dream is. Um, and one, some people don't have access to get to even that platform. And some people don't want access to that. Um, you know, and so I know some people who would much rather work outside, not in front of the computer, uh, be able to get their body movement in, right? Feel accomplished in planting trees. <laughs> like, why can't we have that as a skill and a competency rather than needing to put a suit on and run a meeting? Uh, and so even the value that we bring around what skills, competency, education, um, ways of knowing are. So that's a lot more than what's my class story, but that's part of my class story. Yeah. What are some thoughts about that, Kath? Well, I bought into all that. And my fear is that wherever folks class of origin and shifting over time, how many of us still struggle with people that are rich or smarter, they're better risk takers, they deserve what they have. It's really only recently that I you know, realized Oh, not only historically, but today, folks with significant wealth and income earn it on the backs of so many folks who are working so, with so little money. I just thought I deserved everything I got or earned, as opposed to even my middle or upper middle class background and current lifestyle is still on the backs of folks who are making my clothes overseas, putting in chemicals, they're putting their lives in danger. I have to breathe when I really think about how I live this lifestyle because billions are exploited. Um, and so if that was too much for some folks hearing it, just keep breathing and keep coming back. Um, the part of straddling, you know, I, maybe a while I quote straddled middle class, upper middle, there were but I think when you say straddle, you're talking about poor working class, middle class more. And I just think so many folk that we work with, especially college universities, 
K-12, that's their life experience. And I don't know if you'd be willing to talk more about straddling. It we is. Might... And yeah, so one, there's this, there's the assumption that if we have particular, like if, so if we work in academia, particularly, um, but, I, and, but I also think in some nonprofits or in government agencies. Um, so there is, you know, or even like, you know, corporate, there's an assumption that if we work in there, that um, in particular positions, um, that we, that we, our class of origin is middle, middle class. So there's this assumption that, you know, if somebody's a professor or if they're an associate director, right, or even a program coordinator, even. Um, so again, class to language, right? <laughs> um, that they are from at least a middle-class background. And that's so untrue. There are so many people that straddle class. Uh, and, um, and because we're working within this norm, right? Like the systemic norm that people come from middle-class which equals these values and these, this language and this food and this way of living, um, that that's just assumed. And so then people who don't come from that, um, it, there's like a huge clash or there's like, I've got to assimilate or I've got a mask, right? Um, or I've got to like monitor myself or be strategic and intentional in every damn thing that I do, which is exhausting, right? And so I can't even say damn. Um, because it's unprofessional, right? And it's not what a woman says. And I mean, so there's like all of these layers. Um, and how do we create spaces so that we can storytell, right? So that we can say we show up in a different value system. And so most days I can show up in a perceived middle class, right? That is how people would perceive me if they speak with me if they know my name, what my title, um, that know that I have degrees, see what I drive. Um, and, and that's not incorrect. <laughs> like that's a, that's a real assumption. And like, there's this like deep within my body way of thinking and being that they can't see. And like, I, so I very much like, I have these like working class values, mm. again, of work or of ethic or integrity, um, which I'm always trying to talk with Jacob about, who's, my, who's 10, right? He's my 10-year-old nephew, and he has grown up in a middle class plus life. So there's these assumptions of, like, let's get something to eat every time that I pick him up from school. <laughs> I'm like, that costs money, <laughs> right? But he has a different lens or like when we stay at hotels, right? He knows that because I have status in Hilton that we get free water and we get free Wi-Fi. And sometimes well, in the pandemic, it's been a little different, but um, there's access to a lounge where he can then get, you know, things. So that is his like standard. <laughs> and I'm like, what in the... <laughs> and it's it's like trying to um reconcile that is really challenging right and so even how we um raise our little humans right or the generations that come after us 
So it's not even <laughs> like Becky straddling in her own life. It's straddling in a family, straddling with parents, straddling with younger folks. Um, if it was just, I think, me navigating uh, and lots of us, us navigating our straddling world, ooh, excuse me, <coughs> something's, something's in there. Something um, came up. Yeah. <laughs> but it is like the, then like you're straddling all these different areas of life that kind of bump up um, against each other. And how do we have them do it? Like, I think, how do I have them do a dance together rather than bumping up with each other? And that is a challenge. Mm. Who is Dr. Torres Floboda, I think, who I can't wait to have on the show, who did some research or doctoral work on class straddling, if that sounds accurate. Yes. So I think that was the first time I'm like, oh, as a concept. And then to see how many folks, not only as you said in the workplace, but how many college students, folks at universities are straddlers. I'll ask who's first generation college, who grew up in a class other than where you are. And it's, you know, 60, 70%. And so when I think about all the class privilege I have that I better recognize today, when I'm out consulting, I forget sometimes that 60, 70, 80% of the folks potentially I'm working with could have a very different class story and still may carry those wonderful experiences and values and the depth of classism and oppression that they've experienced and still do. And I wrote the word imposter down because I wonder if that's also a theme across class. Because I know as a middle class, when I'm around, when I was working in corporate consulting, I was, like you said, I was trying to mask and present and I bought suit, suits and listen to how you're supposed to talk. And even though I had middle-class privilege, education privilege, I still was feeling less than, not enough, not as smart. They're going to find me out. And so I don't know if it's even more so for folks that straddled, grew up poor, working class, that now might be middle-class or plus, that whole imposter fear, you're going to find me out, shame, guilt. So all the time. I mean, imposter syndrome is something that I hear almost all the time for people that mm. are straddlers. Um, I was, uh, I, I, don't, I often don't feel imposter syndrome. Like every, every so often it creeps up on me, which I like, I really attribute to my parents. Um, like, like you can, you can do what you want, how you want. I mean, they did a, they ain't perfect parents, but they did some good shit around that. Um, I will say that sometimes I just don't feel comfortable. Um, and I don't equate that to imposter. It's just like, oh, like I feel comfortable in this space or this space or this space. Hmm. Um, so maybe I've also been able to reframe that. Um, again, every so often it creeps up. Um, and I think that I've done a lot of self-work around that. So I've had the opportunity to delve into that in deep, challenging, painful, joyous ways. Like, oh yeah, I'm not gonna do that. I'll, I'd rather do this. Um, and, um, you know, how much do I, uh, and I think this is, goes for straddlers, like how much do we out ourselves? when we talk about class and nuances and values and no, I'd rather eat here than there. Um, so 
you know, there is the um, perception again, um, and the reality of what the current could be or is, um, but there's also like another piece of us. And so, huh, do I, do I want to say something or do I want to name a dynamic um, or do I want to say, yeah, I grew up in a mobile home and stop saying trailer trash and laughing about it, right? Or do you just hold it in and just, it pains you, right? Um, and so I think that there's these different ways of, you know, imposter, like feeling like I'm, I'm an imposter. Yeah. Not enough, not good enough. Because we have more people because our thinking is to bring one or two folks each time, but maybe it'll just be us again, to talk a bit about their class journey and also how it manifests in their lives. And because as I'm hearing you, just the internalized classism, which may be very different given I grew up middle class slash professional. You grew up, as you said, working class, sometimes working poor, farm. And internalized classism shows up in many ways and how you've done more healing than I think I have. Some of my internalized classes, not only I'm not good enough, but also I'm better than. And so listeners, depending on as you do the homework, journaling your class journey, sharing that on the team, maybe or with people you trust in your family systems, friends, um, just begin to notice again, feelings and thoughts, those questions of what did I learn? What was I expected to do? What you can't talk about. Yeah. You just have a few minutes left. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, on social media, on, on Facebook and Instagram, I didn't put this and I think I actually put it on Twitter. Um, I asked like what fan, like growing up, what was a fancy restaurant for you? And it was such a beautiful thread. And there was so much class there. Um, it, most people I knew, and, and I knew most people were straddlers. Um, and there was a lot of like Pizza Hut, right? Or we didn't go out much. Um, uh, and Dr. Mamtha Akapati, she beautifully put in there, like, so she responded and she said, these are buried precious memories. Mm. And I was like, they are, but I, it, and so like, precious memories um but also buried right because it's not something that we are supposed to talk about or that we've like we've tucked in this little space and I was like oh that's so good and it was like it was so much more than the restaurant like it was you know we had to drive to go there or it's when we you know my parents were cutting coupons or it was because I you know was in a reading group and this was the like the thing that you got. And it was just it, like, it's so lovely and so deep because um, it's so much more than the food and the story behind that. And so how do we cultivate spaces to unearth these buried precious memories that are of value to us, that have meaning to us, that bring us joy, um, you know, that are, that have helped shape what I want to, where I want to go eat <laughs> and not have shame around it. Yeah. Healing processes, folks, do your own journaling. And then we ask you to, to maybe notice, we call it panning. At least I do pay attention now, P-A-N, observing, noticing TV, commercials, the news, 
I want to suggest how much do you see middle class and upper middle class portrayed as the norm as you look at movies, books, magazines. So look at everything with a class lens, including your organization, policies, practices, interactions, how people talk about what they did on the weekends, maybe even winter break, vacations, when and how they go to coffee. If it's, they'll just go to the cafeteria, which in itself, or if they go to Starbucks for what, $8, right? So just breathe incredible healing and some of your journey if you're like me will be realizing how you participated and actively benefited from classism then and now and make a commitment like we did with racism to be an ally and accomplish and a change agency dismantle final thoughts dr becky take deep breaths notice markers and notice how you're feeling as you're panning like what comes up for you in that moment um because oftentimes that is what we're going to navigate from. Mm. Yeah. It's been awesome. So awesome. Choose bravery, authenticity, and courage. This is a long haul. We did three years on race. It's not enough. But if you've really been with us, I think you have lots of self-work and tools. Strap in, as you said, seatbelt. Seatbelt. Becky, thank you so much for just investing you as we are on this journey together. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with Dr. Becky Martinez, Center for Transformation Change Consulting. We'll be back next month with more and deeper. Any final word? Um, Go find joy. Hmm. Also, even in your class story, go find joy. It's Hmm. right there. Go well these days. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.